Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Pam figured she'd go work in the movie business and save enough money to pay for school. Her mom's aunt, Mignon, volunteered to go with her. It would take two days and two nights to get from Denver to Hollywood. Pam packed only a single pair of jeans and a purple coat. I had a bucket of Colonel Sanders chicken and $33 in my pocket. And that's it. And nobody was around. Nobody, you know, hugged me and wished me goodbye. It's like, you know, hey, one less person to feed. I don't know. Pam and Mignon set off early on a Friday morning in the summer of 1968 in Pam's blue Pontiac. It was a battered Pontiac Barber and no air conditioning, windows (laughs) crank down, crank up. Aunt Mignon was in her 70s and owned a catering business. She cooked kosher food for wealthy Jewish families. Pam worried about how far her $33 would go. Mignon reassured her she had it covered. And she popped my eyes out because she opened up her pocketbook. There was a big-ass roll of money, cash. I knew I was going to be all right. Pam and Mignon took Route 66. They ate at dive restaurants. They slept in rundown motels on beds that had those vibrating magic fingers that uh, shake you to sleep for a nickel. Mignon told Pam stories about her own life and what she hoped for her niece. And she said, if you ever were afraid, call me, because I want you to try to stay and be one of the first girls in the family to graduate. Pam didn't know what was ahead of her without her mom or daddy Ray. But as the Rockies disappeared in the rearview mirror, Pam knew one thing for sure. She wanted a bigger life, and it wouldn't be long before Los Angeles delivered. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to season four of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, Pam Greer and how she rose to become the queen of blaxploitation films and Hollywood's first female action hero. This is episode two, I'm Not From Here. The first place Pam went when she got to L.A. was David Baumgarten's office on Sunset Boulevard. He was head of the Agency for the Performing Arts, or APA, 
and he was one of the reasons she was in Los Angeles. David saw her in a Denver beauty pageant and told her she had a future in Hollywood. He'd also promised her a job. He made good on that. He hired Pam as a receptionist at APA. In the morning, she answered phones and scheduled meetings. In the afternoons, Pam did the same thing over at American International Pictures, AIP. It was a movie studio that made low-budget films. APA was in the morning, then there was American International Pictures in the afternoon, and that night was a sports club that I played music for a private sports club. I was a DJ. That was her favorite job, spinning records in the dark booth. In total, Pam worked five part-time jobs. It was expensive to live in L.A. No, no. Are you kidding me? I remember I drove in L.A. It was 25 cents a gallon of regular gas. And this is a whole new, different world out there. During morning shifts at APA, Pam became fast friends with the other receptionist, a British woman named Linda. She noticed Pam didn't dress like everyone else at work. The secretary said, Pam, we're going to take you shopping. Because I wore the same blouse and skirt every day. And it was Century City in a store called Judy's. And the secretary said, well, we got to go to Judy's. It so has the greatest clothes and everything. And I'm like, I don't. Have you been to Judy's? No. And when we get there, I said, can I try on the clothes here? Can I try on the clothes? Because we couldn't try them on in stores back in Denver. You had to take them home in a bag with a receipt, try them on and bring them back. Because if whites saw you try on clothing, they wouldn't want to wear it after you did in a clothing store. So, everyone, so, so white people could try on the clothes in the store, but black people could Exactly. Not in Denver. Not in certain stores in Denver. And uh, they said, sure, of course you can try on all these clothes. I went, really? Linda piled blouses, skirts, and pants in Pam's arms and sent her into the dressing room. The fanciest store Pam had ever been in was her neighborhood Sears. She started to cry. L.A. was a very different place from Denver. Pam settled on a black skirt and white blouse. It became her uniform. Pam never told Linda that this was the first time she'd ever tried on clothes in a store where white people shopped. In fact, she didn't share with any of her new co-workers just how different her life was back in Denver. UCLA is a top-rated institution. And though its present site is less than a quarter of a century old, it is properly steeped in hallowed college tradition. In 1968, the student movement was in full swing at UCLA. Anti-war rallies and sit-ins took place on campus pretty regularly. UCLA had also recently created a graduate program in film. Pam figured if she was going to work in the movie business, she ought to learn about it. But tuition was nearly $2,000 a year. Pam knew she could never save that kind of money, not even with those five jobs. She called her mom. I don't think I'll make a mom. It's really expensive. 
It's a whole nother world. I need to come home and go to school there. You know, I guess, no, you should you stay there. Try, try. And I just, well, Mom, I can come home and live with you guys, and I can be a doctor. I'll be okay. And she said, no, try that. She just really wanted me to be independent. Pam hung up the phone and took a walk through campus. There were all these political groups on campus. The Black Panther Party, Sundiata, Sick. And they were having rallies, and it was nice to see that. And the women, liberation, we're burning our bras and stuff like that, going, oh, they're really expensive, don't burn them. Everybody had these wonderful agendas and going on the campus. And I just thought, wow, Pam, you got to try to stay. Don't give up. It was easier to give up. Pam was leaving campus when she saw something in one of the parking lots. There was this area where there was cables, stacks of cables and ropes and gizmos and gadgets and a van and all these students. And I was watching them, and I kind of walked over. I think I said, so what are you doing? And they said... Uh, we're getting ready to go make our short. And I meant, you're sure? He says, yeah, we're in film school, and we got to make our shorts. Pam had no idea what a short was, but she was up for anything. The students told her they were going to be doing some night shooting and that she could come along as part of the crew. And I remember telling someone, I'll be crew, we're going to shoot film. It was exciting because we were on a street, not Hollywood Boulevard, but off of Hollywood, but in the middle of the night shooting scenes. I was holding one of these booms like this, and my afro got in the way, and they said, Pam, they were trying to push my fro down. I was like, I'm sorry, so I won't wear an afro next time. I'll wear it in a scarf or ponytail. And they would tell me what to do, and it was wonderful. The actors were walking along the sidewalk, giving dialogue, and, and we were in the van being pushed along. And next, you know, the, the lights behind us from a patrolman. He says, oh, we got to go. We're going to be arrested. Because we're illegal. We're doing something illegal. Everybody's jumping in the van and throwing things in, and they were trying to push it to get the clutch started, and it was like, oh. I don't know. I don't know if I can do this, but it's it's kind of fun. They eventually made their getaway in the van, and the cops never followed. But that night, Pam got her first taste of guerrilla filmmaking. The students talked about a French film director, Francois Truffaut, and Swedish director Ingmar Bergman, names Pam had never heard before. No. I said, I've never heard of him. So I was really sincere. And they didn't make fun of me or mock me. You know, I just, I really, I'm fascinated by what you are doing here tonight. It means a lot to me. Because I was seriously thinking about packing up and going home. There's just no way. After that night, Pam knew she couldn't give up on L.A. Not yet, anyway. She had so much more to learn about filmmaking. So much more to learn about life beyond Denver. Denver. 
After the break, Pam gets a gig as a backup singer and ends up in a historic late-night jam session. Next thing you know, there's a big-ass bowl of cocaine that comes out of them somewhere. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It was 1969. Pam had been in Los Angeles for about a year. She was on the phone with a friend who always liked to hear Pam sing. She told her friend how she was trying to save money to enroll at UCLA. Her friend offered to help. She knew someone who was looking for backup singers. His name was Bobby Womack. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bobby Womack. I sing alto. I can sing some soprano, scat, jazz. So, you know, Bobby Womack, okay, I can, I can learn. I can follow whatever he wants me to do. Pam was more than ready to audition, but Bobby hired her without ever hearing her sing. She was told to meet him at his studio in Brentwood near Bel Air. And it was him in the glasses and everything. I went, oh, my God, I'm going to sing back up for you. In 1969, Bobby Womack was 25, just a bit older than Pam. He wore big sunglasses and had thick manicured sideburns that stretched well into his cheeks. And he commanded rooms with his soulful baritone voice. Pam sang for Bobby. That's the way I feel about you. Oh, 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 that's the way I feel about you. Oh, 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 that's the way I feel about you. You can sing. Sing. We call it singing. Not if you're a Jewish kid from Washington, D.C. <laughs> Bobby paid Pam $300 to sing backup for him. Then he told her he knew someone else who needed a backup singer. And he says, you know what? You're a student, you need the money. Well, you know, my friend, I think he's he's doing a session. Maybe he needs more background singers. I said, well, if, you know. If, who was the friend? The friend was Sylvester Stewart. Sylvester Stewart, as in Sly from Sly and the Family Stone one of the biggest R&B and soul bands in the nation. At first, the name didn't register with Pam. She didn't realize Sylvester Stewart was sly. The gig was at the CBS Recording Studios on Sunset Boulevard. Pam headed over there the next day. Go up the stairs. He's go up at this floor. Sign this, and you'll meet with the manager of the session and sign in, and you'll get this scale, triple scale. 
It's going to be an all-nighter. Okay, I can I can stay awake. And um, we walk in, and the young man runs up to me, this white guy, hippie, and he says, here, sign this. You're here to sing with Sly Stone. There were other singers there, too. Pam felt like an outsider who had finally found her way in. <laughs> I'm not from here. I don't look like I'm from here. And I'm like, okay, this is what this is. This is what they talk about, Hollywood entertainment. I'm in the bowels. I'm in the arteries. I am now in where things are created. Pam peered through the glass that separated the control room from the studio. There he was, sly, head to toe in leather and suede. He had the biggest afro in the room and a huge smile. He was writing lyrics while the band played. And in the background are a set of drums and a big, dark, burly guy with a fro named Buddy Miles. Buddy was an amazing drummer and singer. At the time, he was a member of what would become Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies. I'm hearing genius. Then they called in Pan to join them. It's awesome. Pinch me, I'm really singing here with Sly and the Family Stone. And then, okay, we're gonna do that. We're gonna record over it. We're gonna, we're gonna multiply what you sung several times so it feels, sounds bigger. So I'm learning studio technique, engineering technique on a song. They recorded until about two in the morning. Sly and the others decided it was time to take a break. They were in the outer hallway of the studio when the elevator doors opened. Three guys with long hair walked out. The one in the middle was wearing a black hat. Pam smelled patchouli oil as he walked by. And then she realized who he was. Okay. This is Jimi Hendrix. Sly Stone. Buddy Miles. I'm like, I'm fucked up. I'm just (laughs) totally messed up. I'm like, okay. Word got out that Jimi Hendrix was in the house. People started milling around from other studios to catch a glimpse of him. Someone asked Pam if she could keep singing. They wanted her to stick around. Next thing you know, there's a big-ass bowl of cocaine that comes out of him somewhere. Pam and the other backup singers were offered the coke, but they passed. And then the guys started to play. They start just plucking the bass, playing the music. Buddy is playing some awesome funk. It was like everybody's just grooving, like, oh man, this is gonna be amazing. Ah, Sly Stone, Jimi Hendrix on a session. Where in the hell are those tapes? Because all I know, we couldn't sit down. And I said, this is this is the genius you hear about. These are the people that uplift us, give us escapism, that inspire us. It was my first eye-opener on 
through creative process and who the people are and where they come from. Pam didn't know it yet, but she was on her way to becoming one of those people too. On a hot night in L.A., Pam learned that her new friends like to cool off in the exclusive clubs along Crenshaw Boulevard. In the 1960s, the Crenshaw area was the heart of black Los Angeles. So some of my friends that I had met through friends, they were all, were all college students. We would put together you know, $10 worth of gas money for, in a Volkswagen and go to the clubs in the area. And I felt uncomfortable because they dressed so cool. And I didn't. That night, Pam and her friends parked the car in front of Maverick's flat. The LA Times once called Maverick's LA's Apollo Theater. Acts like Parliament Funkadelic, The Supremes, and The Temptations all performed there. Celebrities came too, people like Muhammad Ali and The Rolling Stones. And everyone was so cool, Afro's big, they just wore the right clothes. <laughs> and my friends were talking to their friends and I was just a wallflower with a white blouse that I wore to APA and a black skirt. That's how horrible I dress at a club. And I was watching everyone and there was this tall person with sunglasses on in a dark club and a cane and I was like, God, he's tall. Pam watched him for a while. He could really dance. And that surprised her for someone so tall. She didn't expect him to have rhythm, but he did. And then the tall guy spotted her. And I felt intimidated because the closer he got, the taller he got. And he came over, he said, hi, so you're not from here. <laughs> like. No, I'm not. But I'm here trying to get into school, UCLA. So oh, I, I went to UCLA, played basketball. I went, uh, you, watch, you like basketball? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm poor. I don't go to basketball games. I don't know. And I didn't say that, but I said, I don't know. He said, you should come to a game sometime. I said, okay. He gave Pam his number. And one day, not long after, she called him. His name was Lou Alcinder Jr., when Lou and Pam met in 1969, Lou was 21 years old in his final year at UCLA. And by the luck of a coin toss, he'd just been drafted first by the Milwaukee Bucks. With the flip of a coin today, the Milwaukee Bucks won the most important draft pick in the history of the NBA. The prize is the sensational Lou Alcindor from UCLA. Lou grew up in Inwood in Upper Manhattan raised Catholic by his parents, Cora and Lou Alcindor Sr. By the time he was 12 years old, Lou had grown to seven feet tall. Kids in the neighborhood and at school would tease him. Despite his height, he often found himself losing schoolyard fights. But his parents understood that his extreme height was a gift. He wanted to play football, but he wasn't a football type. You know, he was too tall and stringy. So we convinced him that he shouldn't play football, he should play basketball. I didn't know anything about basketball at the right. time. You know, I was a complete novice. 
It took Lou a few years of fumbling around the court in middle school before he really got the hang of the game and became a pretty good center. So good that college recruiters compared Lou, still in high school, to the best professional players in the country. Seven foot, quarter inch Lou Alcindor, a 15 year old, who reminds everybody of Wilt Chamberlain. By the time he got to UCLA to play for the Bruins, Lou was seen as a near lock to be an NBA star. Yet, even with America's eyes on him, Lou kept to himself. He wasn't great at talking to girls or making new friends. As a city kid, Lou saw how police brutality was affecting black neighborhoods, including his own. I found my voice after Dr. King was assassinated. The whole idea of nonviolence and pointing out the weakness of people, of racist philosophies and things like that, the truth will set you free. Lou Alcindor may have been the most coveted young basketball player in the country, but to Pam, he was just Lou from New York City. She liked listening to him talk about anything from the black power movement to his New York childhood. He gave Pam a lot to think about, and he could relate to Pam's upbringing and the things she'd seen. He listened to her talk about farming, horses, and Daddy Ray. They must have watched Kurosawa's Seven Samurai a dozen times together. They even bonded over Bruce Lee films. I knew the difference between karate and jiu-jitsu and kung fu and qigong and white tiger. There's two different forms, external and internal. And he was very impressed with that. He said, I want you to meet my friend Bruce Lee. And I knew who he was. And I went, you know Bruce Lee? Yes, and we're going to do a movie together. You are? I was like, I was a country bumpkin. Pam was mesmerized by Lou the way he was able to move with such grace, despite his size. To see him at 7'2", form with his legs and his body and his energy, I was like, he's amazing. He's tall and fast and athletic at such size and grace. And I was athletic. So we had this athleticism and intelligence and music. He loved Miles Davis. He talked me about jazz, and we would play Stanley Turrentine and all the jazz horns, because I grew up with it. So we had a lot in common, and I felt comfortable, and it lured me in. Pam started spending nights at Lou's Malibu apartment. Sometimes she'd stay for most of the week. That apartment was her favorite place to go after a long night of DJing. Sometimes when Lou would come to watch her at the club, she'd play one of his favorite bands, Tower of Power. She'd watch him dance through the crowd. It didn't take long for Pam to fall in love with Lou. And like the rest of America, she loved watching him on the court, too. There you see Alcindor defensively step back from back. I'm watching the greatest center in the world and basketball, and seeing what he did, and I was just in awe. He was teased as a child. He was criticized for his height and his gawkiness or whatever, but he was just going to be an outstanding human being at what he did. 
This is his first professional basketball game, and the whole country has waited for it. His first shot. It's on his first attempt from the field. The Milwaukee Bucks drafted Lou Alcindor after their first NBA season. It wasn't a good one. They went 27 and 55. They were easily overlooked that first year. That was until Lou Alcindor stepped onto the court as their new center. As a rookie, Lou almost single-handedly flipped the team's record. Lou won Rookie of the Year and became a household name. But as Pam watched Lou's games on TV, she got anxious. His fame grew so fast. Going toe-to-toe with some of his childhood idols on the court, she worried that if he made the wrong move, one misstep, one full-body hit, that he'd get hurt. And he would talk about it. It could end his career. If he did something wrong or something, you know, off the court or on the court, So he highly valued the theory of being in great shape, being responsible. He took it very seriously. By now, she felt like Lou's partner. They were a team, and she was protective of him. What would I do to keep him safe? What am I going to do to help him? It all came back to the same thing for Pam, education. She needed to go to school to secure her independence so that if something happened to Lou, they'd be able to count on her. And that summer, Lou told Pam he wanted to talk to her about something important. I started to investigate Islam after I read the autobiography of of Malcolm X uh, while I was a freshman at UCLA. I really... uh, was taken by what he had to say about Islam, and I started to investigate it. When they first started dating, Lou told Pam that he was converting from Catholicism to Islam. But now, he was taking another step. And I became interested in Islam and became Muslim. But that was my thought process. It was a position of for myself, for my own identity, that I wanted to assume, not something that was imposed on me. As part of his conversion, he told Pam he was changing his name. He asked her to start calling him Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I was a Muslim. As such, I was given a new name by my teacher, Abdul, servant of Allah, Kareem, the generous. We didn't have cute names. We didn't have that. It went from, I had to get out of calling him Lou. I was always calling him, you know, Lou Alcindor. A lot of people did still. And I said, I really like Lou. I was getting used to it. And he says, well, I'm Kareem now. And then I have uh, Abdul, and then I'll get Jabbar and and if we marry, you'll be, you can choose your name or someone will choose, someone's going to choose my name. This new name told Pam that things were about to change. When the plot thickens returns, Pam and Kareem get serious, and Pam ends up auditioning for the king of low-budget cult movies. 
Pam and Kareem had been dating for a year when they started talking about getting married. At first, Kareem told Pam she wouldn't have to convert to Islam. But after a while, it became clear that he did expect her to convert. And soon, he made another ask. He wanted her to give up working, along with her dream of going to school. It was a discussion that was making Pam more and more uncomfortable. Now, thanks to the spirit of equality in the air... After all, it was 1970. Feminist leaders like Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug were demanding equal rights for women. What's wrong with my running for president of this country? Shirley Chisholm had been elected the first black woman to the U.S. Congress two years earlier. Pam was paying attention. Women could do more, should do more. And Pam wanted to know what Kareem expected from her. When you pushed him, what would he always end up saying? <laughs> He'd always say, it is written. Pam imagined what her future might be like married, what it would be like to have kids, to be the one who stayed home and took care of them. It wasn't just about being married to Kareem. It was about being married, period. When you've had those kids and you have stretch marks and you don't have them tiny little hips that you used to have and you're tired and then all you can do is lie there and they, they want you to make love to them. It's not even love. It's just like... I could see that future. I could see me living in his shadow and his income and being at home watching him. And I, is that showing my love to him? After months of back and forth, Kareem gave her a book. It was about becoming a Muslim woman. Their relationship began to change. And so did Pam. In the fall of 1970, Pam was still juggling several jobs, including the one at APA, the talent agency. One day, an agent asked her if she'd ever considered acting. It just so happened that Roger Corman was holding a casting call down the street for a movie called The Big Dollhouse. Pam recognized Roger Corman's name from her other job. He produced low-budget movies. The agent said he was working on a new film about women in prison. I says, well, you'd be perfect because... You're kind of raw. <laughs> You're unpolished. And I'm like, okay. You're perfect for natural, rugged, whatever you are. And I said, oh, I don't know. He said, well, you could work for tuition. I said, yeah, but I don't want to get fired. I don't know anything about acting. So let me just do this here, do my other jobs, both stay focused. And he says, well, you want to meet him? I said, no. He said, come on, let's walk down the street. We walked down from APA office down Sunset to literally a block to Roger's office on the corner. You know, and there's these erotic posters of women on the walls. I'm going, okay, where am I? There were other women in the room waiting to audition too. Black women, white, and Latina. Some of them looked like models. The agent pulled her past the line and spoke to someone at the door. Hey, tell Roger I'm here. And they take me in. We go in, close the door. On the other side of the door were Roger Corman, a few studio execs, and the director. My name is Jack Hill. Been called a um, grunge auteur. Um, 
<laughs> a titan of exploitation films and stuff like that. Back then, Jack was 37 years old with a decade of experience working on film crews. Jack and Roger had been introduced by a mutual friend, Francis Ford Coppola. He was in class with me, and we worked on each other's student films. And then uh, at one point, he got um, in somehow with Roger Corman, and uh, and he brought me in there to work with him on various things. Oh, but he did—he was making these nudie cuties. I don't know if you're familiar with that genre. Sex-crazed women driven by bizarre desires. Nudie cuties were adult entertainment films. They were low budget and played in cheap theaters. Now, Roger wanted to make a women in prison movie, a genre that was becoming popular at the time. So Jack found him a script, and here they were, in Roger's office, holding auditions. So we were just having a kind of a, hate to use the word, but that was common, a cattle call, where we told agents to bring in their, what they think was talented people. I was looking for a black actress also. Although the role was not written specifically for a black actress. I was looking for players that I thought would go together as an ensemble, different types that would work together. And so I wanted a black actress as part of that. And for Jack, that actress had just walked in the room. Roger's looking at me. He says, you were right. She's raw. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, yeah, okay, so Pam, sit down. Where are you from? I'm from Colorado. Really? Pam thought about leaving the audition. But before she could back out, Roger asked her to read the script. Nothing made sense to me. Didn't know what an audition was. Wasn't a meeting. He asked me, can you read? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I read a lot. He says, no, no, read. In an audition, you play the character and you read. I was totally fucked up. I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, I'm sure I can read. So they hand it to me to read, and I'm like, and then he goes to the, it was was like, I told you I can read, and they were like, okay. So you're reading the stage direction. I'm I'm reading everything. You're reading every word on the page. I'm reading everything. Jack can't recall what Pam read that day or if she even read it all but he knew he wanted her in his movie. All I knew is that she just impressed me with what we used to call authority. They offered Pam the role on the spot, $500 a week for five or six weeks of filming in the Philippines. Pam did some quick math. She was only making $150 a week. Accepting this gig would make saving money for school so much easier. I said, but first... You have to call my mom. Pam knew her mom would want to make sure she'd be safe. The second demand was that after filming, Pam could return to her job as a receptionist at APA. Roger and the agent agreed. So I got the confidence to go to the other side of the world to figure out who I was. At 21 years old, Pam Greer was set to star in her first movie. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Pam goes to the Philippines to make movies and jumps out of a moving plane. 
There was no landing strip, so I'm like, I'm gonna die here in the Philippines. I can see them be bitten by a cobra, fall out of a plane, get hit by my luggage. I can see that. And Kareem gives Pam an ultimatum. He says, well, if you don't commit to me today, then I'm gonna marry someone who is prepared for me. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry Okeke. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yaakov Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yaakov Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitone, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wentz, and the entire TCM marketing team. Special thanks to Bruce Shapiro at Columbia University's Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.